Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And a warm welcome back to you. I'm Graham, and today I'm telling three stories from Manchester. Well, kind of, let's say from Manchester and its environs. Before we begin, I'd just like to give my thanks to Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. Together they form a traditional English folk duo, and they very kindly contacted me a couple of months ago with a few tunes for the podcast, which kind of blew me away really. Their music is used a few times in this episode, including over the end credits, and I'll be sure to include more of them in the future. I'm really delighted to be able to bring their music to you, and very thankful that they got in touch. And now, on to the stories. And this trio of tales are tied together by a terrible thread that you might have guessed from the title of this episode. That thread is the grim spectre of death, and more particularly, by corpses that curious composite of organic bits and pieces that once were arrayed in such a configuration that they formed an animate being able to experience the world of a complex of senses, emotions, thoughts, for better or worse. But those exact same parts now lie motionless and passionless as a brick, fated soon to be disassembled by nature. But until they are completely gone, they have a compelling power on the human imagination. The significance of what once those pieces formed, or, if your spirituality prefers, what once dwelt within them, can elicit a gamut of emotions, sadness, fear, sometimes joy, and are often used as a shorthand for a deep questioning of one's own meaning when confronted with the reality that this, this will be all of our fates. And that's how you get tons of artwork showing babies casually playing with skulls like their teddy bears. But Graham, you might be saying, Wasn't last episode also kind of heavy on the death and corpses? Wasn't there a skull at one point? And most of the main characters in that story died. And then there were some more deaths in the subsequent story as well. And weren't all those stories, you say, getting clever now, set many hundreds of years ago? So everyone who features in them now is dead as well. Oh, those are mild spoilers for the last episode there, by the way. Sorry. And I will reply to you, well... I commend and am somewhat taken aback by your encyclopedic knowledge of the last episode, but you will recall that I said there was a good chance that Limping Billy's magic could have kept him alive to this day, so maybe he's still alive, and not everyone in those stories I told last time is dead. But more to the point, yes, you're probably right. There were a lot of deaths last episode as well. Though death still comes from Mancunians, as expectedly and yet shocking as it does for us all, But it just so happens that the great cake into which all stories are baked has been cut in such a way that the pieces distributed to the city are rather more stuffed with corpses than your average slice. But that is all part of the great story cake-making process. It's a lumpy mix, and that is fine. Good, in fact. Perfectly even blend of ingredients might be superficially attractive, but would be dull for the taste buds. Which, I think, in this metaphor... The taste buds are people who like stories. Um, There's a lot of Manchester stories about death. And I know the title of the episode is a pretty awful pun. 
And look, I almost went with Necroasis, but I didn't quite like the synecdoche of using Oasis to represent all of Manchester. But let's set that aside. There are three stories, so let's start the first of them. And so as to not give too much away, I'm going to entitle this one The Tale of Wardley Hall in Worsley. A package had arrived for Maria. The year might have been 1638, but Maria's basic experience would be very familiar to many of us today. It seems like we live now in the golden age of home delivery, but the basic experience is a rather old one indeed, and before shops became widespread, many of the richest families in the north, who lacked immediate access to goods of the quality that would allow them to compete with the southern Joneses, had little option but to send orders to the more refined boutiques and craftsmen of London. In due course, orders would be received, prepared, packed and shipped up to the eager consumers. The whole process was of course rather lengthy by our standards, but apart from that it was basically the same. And on the plus side, the packaging was often far more ornate than the cardboard box from Amazon. Now, Maria Downs was a member of a rich northern noble family, the Downses, obviously, who owned Wardley Hall in Worsley. Repeat, Wardley Hall in Worsley. It was some eight or so miles distant from the present-day centre of Manchester. That global metropolis in Potentia was then, well, in Potentia. And today, Maria had received goods from Jem Hazeldean, the local carrier, who maybe transported his goods on a Hermes-branded packhorse, but who, in contrast to his modern-day equivalent, had carefully handed the package to Maria. You know, rather than sneaking up to the door without knocking, delivering a sorry-we-missed-you note, and then drop-kicking the parcel somewhere in the general vicinity of the house before fleeing with ungodly speed. It was a different time. This package had come all the way from London, Jem told her. Arrived on the wagon last night. You expecting it? Maria examined the wooden box. It was plain as these things went. Not a large item. She could hold it comfortably between her two hands. Fairly light. She racked her brains. No, no, I I don't think I was, actually. But rich people were like that, Jem knew. They'd so much stuff they didn't value it at all. If he was expecting a box, he'd remember, but not a lady like her. She had so much already. How could she possibly expect to know if what she had arriving was the newest London chintz, a ruby ring, or a finely bound Bible? It could be any of these, or many other unnecessary gaudy trinkets. Jem said his goodbyes, and as Maria carried the package inside, she thought to herself, it really was rather plain. And once inside, she was distracted by someone talking to her, maybe. Or perhaps she just got caught up in thinking about what was to go in the next podcast episode, and how long it had been since she'd written some, and she started to worry about that. And then that prompted her to set the package down on a random surface, at which point she promptly forgot all about it, much to the annoyance of other inhabitants of the household when they later found an unexplained box on some surface or other. This line is kind of an apology to everyone I've ever lived with, while also hinting that I'm unlikely to change my somewhat scatterbrained habits anytime soon. Sorry guys. 
But yes, she put the parcel down and she left it. But now we take a sudden screeching detour in the narrative. Or possibly it's more like a time-travelling pogo stick-sized leap in the narrative. For we move forward a hundred years, and the chronological lens refocuses on a view of Thomas Barrett. I want to be able to announce Barrett as the second 19th century folklore collector to appear as an actual story character, but I can't. Because even a hundred years forward, we're now only in the 18th century. And technically Barrett was an antiquarian rather than a folklore collector. An antiquarian is a kind of coverall term for someone who was interested in and wrote the histories of local areas. But it also incorporates what are now other distinct disciplines. Architectural history, archaeology and yes, folklore amongst them. Oh, and antiquarians also like to kind of collect physical stuff. They like to touch it. Their collections form the basis of many modern museums. Antiquarianism was a recognised field in and of itself in the 18th and 19th centuries, and Thomas Barrett was the greatest Manchester-based antiquarian of the age. He also made and sold saddles, and he had a prosthetic leg made of cork. Quite a dude, actually, though none of that's really relevant here. For at the moment we see him, he's in full antiquarian mode, and has just paid a visit to Wardley Hall with a trio of his companions. It's a striking edifice, the hall. Whitewashed bricks, black timber frame, a grand entranceway, all encircled by a moat that predates the house, coming from as early as the late 1200s. You can see why this is precisely the sort of place that would attract the raptured attention of antiquarians, just as big old houses attract many fascinated tourists to this very day. And him and his friends had just had a visit, to look around. But being British and interested in history and reasonably well off and living at the time, well, there are certain behaviours deeply ingrained on the souls of such people, so they form habits that are nigh impossible to shake. And so Barrett and his companions had not simply visited, looked around, left, leaving everything as it was. No, no. Such a thing was basically inconceivable to these fellows. They carried something with them. It had been a bright, fine day when they had arrived, but as they started the short ride back to the city, the sky blackened and large, heavy raindrops began to fall. They had not gone far before the first ominous roll of heavy thunder could be heard. And by the time the four men were safely seated around a warm fire in some city inn discussing day's discoveries, well, by that time, all of Manchester was engulfed in a ferocious storm. And had they been able to see Wardley Hall, then they would have found it to be at the very centre of the elemental intensity. Lightning struck and fell trees, Winds whipped, tearing off slates and ripping fat roofs clean off some of the outhouses. A furious maelstrom of biblical proportions vented its anger on the house that night. And at some point, one of the house's inhabitants noticed the absence. Those bloody antiquarians! Find them! Find them now or we've all had it! And in a great rush, servants and masters alike left the house 
facing into the great storm, they burst forth, burst forth to find those damn antiquarians. And just to keep you on your toes, we're going to a third scene now. We're back in the year 1638, as before. But not to Manchester and Wardley Hall and Maria, but to the very centre of London. We're on London Bridge, where Roger Downs was out celebrating with a whole gang of his friends. Rich and privileged, boorish, violent, drunken and above all loud. You know the type. And if you really don't, just go to a regatta. Roger was feeling particularly untouchable this night, as his group leered at passers-by, shouted insults, and generally behaved appallingly. He'd always known wealth and power in his life, but recently he'd seen with his own eyes the true extent of what that meant. And it was perhaps even more than he'd expected. You see, a few months previous, he'd been drinking long throughout the day. And he wasn't a good-natured happy drunk. Nope, he was a vile and angry drunk, and a murderous rage had taken a hold of him. For reasons that even he could no longer recall, he emerged from his drinking den, waving his rapier and declaring the first man he met, he'd strike dead. And staggering along the streets of London that night, he made good on his senseless boast, when he ran a poor tailor through with his blade. A man who had made no offence against him, but was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, there was law in those days, and the inebriated psychopath was swiftly arrested for his terrible crime and locked up. And for a small while, when he sobered up, he might have known fear for his life, as he considered his impending execution in a country still very keen on the death penalty. But... If he had had such an experience, it was short-lived indeed, for he had land and title and his connections at the court of the king were what mostly ensured him a swift pardon. And within very little time at all, the definitely guilty murderer was 100% free thanks to the beneficence of the monarch and the blindness of the law. And now here he was on London Bridge with his fellows, and he was giving it the old, Oi, what are you looking at, freak? Yeah, you. You, pauper. You want some, do you? Come on, then. Roger Downs knew now that he was untouchable. But unfortunately for him, not everybody else did. It wasn't long before a fight broke out on the bridge. Between who exactly was difficult to determine. Another group of arrogant courtiers out for a scrap? A hardy blacksmith Roger had insulted and who wasn't taking any crap? or some kind of mini-civil war between members of their own little gang, upset at some banter that had gone too far. No idea. But an all-out brawl was now in progress, and this was taking place in the middle of the largest, richest city in the land. And there were laws. Now, this was too early for the blowing of the whistle and the hup 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 noise of mustering policemen, but those elements could be found in spirit, as a group of night watchmen made for the brawl. Roger Downs grinned as he felled an opponent. Blood splattered dramatically, and his eyes lit up maniacally as he took his second life. An uncontrollable thirsting bloodlust rose in him, and he turned to see the officers of the law making for his party. 
He had no fear of these men now. They were nothing to him. Do you know who I am? He asked the watchman. Do I care? came the reply. I'm Roger Downs. Who's that then? Roger Downs! And on that he charged, giggling, viscera-soaked rapier drawn and pointed at the nearest watchman. The watchman who didn't know Roger from Adam, who was calm and composed, who had years of combat experience, formerly fighting the Dutch and the Spanish, and latterly against all kinds of the worst London rogues. Without hesitation, he made a single clean, powerful stroke with his halberd, and he neatly separated Roger's wealthy landed head from his wealthy landed body. And now we go back to Maria. Maria Downs in Wardley Hall. With that package, the small box from London, she's finally remembered. She opens it curiously, excitedly, and upon seeing its contents, she drops it, and she screams, and she screams, and she screams. And now, scene change. We're a hundred years later again, and the antiquarians have been tracked down to their pub. The storm rages all around, showing no signs of abating. The men from Wardley Hall burst in, drenched. There they are, lads. They make for the antiquarian's table. Through the open doorway, flashes of lightning illuminate the night, the driving rain, and the vast puddles that are forming in the streets. Where is it? What did you do with it? demands the man from Wardley Hall as the thunder crashes all around. And a rapid-fire time jump, we're back in 1638. Roger Downs' face grins up at his sister from the floor of her house. It was hardly recognisable as him, a great mess of flesh and hair and coagulated blood. But if she'd had any doubt, the gleeful, handwritten note with it made perfectly clear who this was, who this had been. Justice had been done in spite of the corruption at the heart of the legal system. After recovering from her shock, Maria eventually summoned the tremendous composure required to bury the hated object. No service, just a shallow, unmarked grave on the grounds, to give it some kind of resting place and to get it away from her. Days passed. Maria remained upset, of course, but life went on. It has that irritating habit for the living. And it's difficult to overstate the intensity of the terror that gripped Maria one day when she was coming up the main staircase of the hall and her eyes rested for a moment on the little niche on the windy staircase. It was an architectural peculiarity, that a little hole whereby one could see through into the rooms beyond the stairs. This feature meant that it let a little light through, light that was now conspicuous by its absence, blocked by something, blocked by the skull, the skull that Maria had buried, and yet which was now sitting in that niche, looking at her and grinning. 
At first, Maria thought it some sick prank by someone who had observed her, but it very swiftly became apparent that something far more supernatural was occurring. If the skull was moved from the very visible resting place it had chosen itself, some tragedy would befall the house. Sometimes it would make its own way back, and other times it would just make its displeasure clear enough for its seeming control over the elements that it would be returned voluntarily. Finding all of this out, the nature of the curse, day after day, taking the skull away, putting it back, this started to affect Maria's nerves, and the nerves indeed by now of everybody in the house. The house was constantly being buffeted by the most terrible storms, and you could have rewritten the lyrics so the cat came back to explain the situation. The skull came back the very next day. The skull came back. We thought it was a goner, but the skull came back. It just couldn't stay away. There seemed no solution to the curse. And finally, the skull was smashed into pieces. And then later on, it was burnt in the fireplace and then smashed again. And as you might have picked up there, the multiple destructions are a key indicator that none of it stuck. Whatever was done to the skull, it was back in its place soon afterwards, looking only more white and devoid of flesh every time. And those who had unwisely attempted its destruction were afflicted with horrible physical torments thereafter. Very soon, no one would go near the thing. Okay, so if it wants to be there, let's let it. They tried to brick it up in its niche. The bricks were on the stairs the next morning, the mason's hands were racked with a white-hot pain. So after a while, the only thing to do was to leave the evil thing in plain sight where it was determined to be. And it was from there that 100 years later, a light-fingered antiquarian had taken it on a visit to the house. After Thomas Barrett's companions had fessed up to taking the old white bleach skull, and after it had been returned to its proper place and the fearsome storm that threatened to destroy Manchester had finally subsided, Barrett would write sniffily in his papers about the event. This storm might have happened had the skull never been removed, but it served to keep alive the credibility of the tradition and the credulity of its believers. Meow, Thomas. Maria Downs had been so shaken by the murderous character of her brother, his death, and the subsequent supernatural terror of his skull, that she would be weak and ill for the rest of her life and never marry or have children. So the family line died with her, and Wardley Hall passed into others' hands, complete with its skull. Contained within the deeds to the hall was a condition that the skull never be moved in an attempt to protect future owners. Such owners, of course, ignored the condition, to their considerable detriment, before they too became fully cognizant of the terrible power of the skull. And eventually, of course, there came the interventions of superior antiquarians, who wrongly assumed they knew better. Today, Wardley Hall is the official residence of the Roman Catholic Bishop of Salford. The skull of Roger Downs is still in its niche, and all is at peace at least until some arrogant and sceptical fellow thinks he knows better than to listen to such superstitious rubbish. And then, who knows what will happen.
Okay, so after a couple of comments, I've decided that in anthology episodes like this one, I'm going to do the discussion section for each story after the relevant story, rather than having them all together at the end. Thanks to the people who let me know that that was what they would prefer. So, the story we've just heard, The Cursed Skull of Wardley Hall. What do I have to say about this one? Well, quite a lot, potentially. Firstly, yes, there really is a skull in Wardley Hall, which is really on display, and yes, the hall really is the official residence of the Roman Catholic Bishop of Salford. However, the skull is not Roger Downes' skull. Roger Downes did exist, and he did live in the hall, and he did die young, but the skull isn't believed to be his. But we do know who the skull was a part of. Definitely. Maybe. At least the diocese is sure of who it was. A Catholic martyr by the name of Father Ambrose Barlow. The ferocity and violence of the Protestant-Catholic divide is a key part of English history, as much as it feels so distant, academic and downright bizarre to me today. This Manchester-born Father Ambrose Barlow was a Catholic priest at a time when Catholicism was outlawed and he preached to those at Wardley Hall, which he was given access to because the Downsers were his cousins. And because people are generally awful, he was eventually arrested and executed by the very violent method of hanging, drawing and quartering, all in the name of a loving God, of course. His head was then impaled on a pike, and it may even have been displayed at Manchester Parish Church as a trophy or as a warning, according to at least one account I read. But in a murky series of events, the skull was supposedly rescued by one of the Downsers and brought to the hall, where it became a relic for Catholic worship. The first record I found referred to of the skull dates to 1745, when it was rediscovered, at the point where the chapel was being demolished. This was about 100 or so years after Ambrose died, so we can't entirely be sure it's his. Um, The skull has actually been taken out and examined on a couple of occasions to try and work that out, and results are inconclusive. But it seems likely that it could be, and it has been generally accepted as such, and is displayed on the staircase very much as a Catholic relic. At one point in 1930, the skull was actually stolen, and then later returned after attracting some media attention. Which obviously should have brought about the ruin of the hall, but, well, maybe it just brought it about on the thieves, and that was why it was returned. Yep, that seems sensible. Father Ambrose, by the way, is now a saint. This didn't happen until 1929, just before the theft. I don't know whether there was a relation there. So, the skull is the head of a saint now. So... Where does the other story come from, the one about Roger Downs? I've seen at least one interpretation that the Roger Downs' version was made up to kind of cover up the Catholic nature of the skull, which is possible, sounds a little too neat, but I don't think we really know. It is certainly the truth that by the time that Barrett visited the hall, and Barrett was certainly a real person, the story about Roger Downs was known. And I think that's about all we can really say. Thomas Barrett, by the way, I've done a little bit of a disservice to in the story, where I've made his sceptical attitude seem a little silly. I mean, I'm kind of on his side, probably. Um, Especially when you consider that he didn't actually steal the skull, as I said, but one of his fellows did move it around out of its niche, 
and that caused the storm, but the storm only occurred a couple of nights later. And yes, that does make Barrett's dismissal of the moving of the skull as the cause of the storm seem a damn sight more reasonable. Now, in researching this, I actually ended up going down a bit of a Barrett rabbit hole, a Barrett hole, mm, though I can't really justify bringing much of it in here. It's not really related to the story particularly. Suffice to say that he was a fascinating chap who investigated lots of the history of the north of England. He did drawings, looked at heraldry, wrote manuscripts, and generally did loads of research despite having lost a leg at an early age and coming from a fairly humble background. Anyway, as I say, not super relevant here, but if you're interested, there are some videos online from Dr. Peter Lindfield that you might want to check out, as I have. I should also mention, by the way, a name you'll have heard before, John Roby. Him of last episode's Sir Tarquin story and the Spectre Horseman episode. If you can't quite remember, he's a Lancaster folklorist who basically does full literary rewrites of traditional stories, but whose work has been very popular, possibly for that reason. He also did one of this story, introducing lots of the elements that I've now taken and put into the story today. Now, I didn't actually come to this story realising that he'd written about it, but it turns out he's basically unavoidable in the folklore of Lancashire. And finally, I'm just going to add here the little oddity that if you do an internet search about this, you'll see that the skull is referred to as a screaming skull. The screaming skull of Wardley Hall is kind of how this is entitled. You might notice the skull in this story doesn't actually scream. It's entirely mute. And that's true for all versions of this story. So, a bit odd that then, isn't it? Well, you see, the thing is that Despite this, it fits into a category of very specific stories that are called Screaming Skull Stories. Sheffield University's David Clark has set out the key components of these folktales. One, an old skull is on display. Two, it dates from some time before living memory, usually the 15th to 18th centuries. Three, it's imperative that the skull is left where it is. And four, if it is removed, terrible supernatural consequences result. There's also no screaming there, you'll note, but some of these skulls do scream when removed. Most famously one at Betiscombe Manor in Dorset. And that imagery of an object that you pick up and it shrieks is so powerful as to have given the phenomenon its more general name. These screaming skulls are scattered around houses all throughout England, so, if you're in the country and you want to go see a screaming skull yourself, you might well be able to. Though please do resist the temptation to pocket it. Okay, well, I think that's enough on that for now. We move now from the hall in northwest Manchester to the city's furthest extent east. And to a little tale I'm going to entitle The New Hartshead Boggart. Hartshead is a place that even today is fairly remote from the city centre. And back in the early 19th century when our story is set, 
Well then, it, and indeed the entire area of Lees and Ashton under Line, between which the hamlet of Hartshead sits, was mostly isolated farmsteads and fields and meadows rising up eastwards until eventually becoming the vast, lonely, flat plain of Saddleworth Moor. There were narrow lanes and occasional clusters of houses with a pub of sorts, but that was all, and in the spaces around the farms and the villages, there the supernatural lurked. And I mean kind of everywhere, not just the odd ghost or something someone's nan saw 50 years ago. No, Hartford at the time was almost at a high fantasy level of supernatural. There was so much of the stuff that it actually kind of wrapped around the other side so that the sheer weight of it just made it seem, well, natural, if that's not too much of a contradiction in terms. It was just a part of the everyday world. Though, picture that world more like The Witcher than Lord of the Rings. Less great elven and orcish armies clashing, and more, if you hear that some kids went playing in the woods earlier in the day, then you know that someone soon will be finding clawed hoof prints, then concerning blood trails, and then finally misshapen bits of what were once innocent village children liberally scattered across several acres. It was worst of all after dark. Then the creatures would come closer, get bolder, and most unfortunate of all were the souls who found themselves alone on the moors at night. In the general Hartshead locale resided Peg with the iron teeth, jack-o'-lanterns. There was a hobgoblin that appeared as a calf with a cap on its head and a bonnet around its neck. The spirits of restless murdered children wandered the lonely lanes. Then there was the great hulking Padfoot, a giant canine creature that stalked its victims on the moor by night. The people had buried the body of a suicide victim at the confluence of three lanes with a stake through his heart, as this was the proper way to make sure he didn't cause any trouble. But sweet Fanny Adams that had done, for he was known to get out of his grave and roam around at night, just adding to the beasties. There were Grindylow lurking at the bottom of pools, their long arms and sharp teeth awaiting unwary swimmers. There were men without heads, there were clap cans, and I tease you not, there were nut nans. What's a nut nan, Graham? Glad you asked. No, not a head-butting grandma. No, a nut nan was a kind of spirit that guards hazelnuts from the grasping hands of thieving children. It would attack the children with a burning hot poker. I mean, yes, it could just be a very angry and aggressive normal nan, but no, this was a very specific paranormal creature, somehow. The poker was a ghost or something. There were witches and warlocks who worked their weird warped magics. And above all else, and kind of incorporating it all, were the boggarts. Now we talked a little bit about boggarts last episode, but now, now boggarts really come thick and fast, a storm of boggarts. For boggart here is really a kind of catch-all term for all manner of these kind of unnatural beings. Sometimes they'd appear as huge hounds, other times they'd be more like what we might call poltergeists, yet other times they materialise as horned monstrosities that crawled in through the chimneys. I haven't even named all the creatures in this place, but I think you get the idea now. It was infested with them. Given this, it's really quite impressive that anybody managed to get anything done at all. I have a breakdown when someone rings my phone unexpectedly. So fair play to the people who managed to somehow go on eking out all the usual bits of life. You know, the basics. Water, food, Wi-Fi, 
living long enough to reproduce and bring up children, who would then also live in this awful world. They did all this despite the teeming nightmarish horde of horrors that swarmed constantly around their flickering embers of civilization. Hardy northerners, the lot of them. But you see, the thing is that humanity has only so much capacity for terror. And after a while, indeed after a lifetime spent in such a situation, well, people eventually become habituated, desensitised to it all. It's a kind of base psychological coping technique hardwired into our species. It's not pleasant to get there. It doesn't lessen the terrible trauma of living in a world of hostile night terrors. But it happens nonetheless. Familiarity breeds contempt, as they say. And so it was for the people of Hartshead. The shrieking woman, sobbing and moaning in the midnight air as she did, was as well known to them as any crying child. Annoying when you're trying to sleep, certainly. But no object of abject terror. The people had horseshoes nailed to the doors to stop the witch's curses, as casually as one might display a sign that says, No hawkers, no circulars. And they'd take a detour when the great white-clad boggart was in the yew tree again, and even nod a workmanlike hello at it from a safe distance. The people had found a way. And, for those not stolen away in the night at least, life went on. And so you might imagine that when whispered news of some new ghoul reached the people, there would be a shrugging of shoulders and a general nonplusness before those people would turn to the proverbial sports pages of the local gossip mill. But if you did imagine that, then you'd be wrong, for new ghosts were novel and unknown, and brought with them dangers that could not necessarily be guarded away by knowing which route to take home, or carrying some lucky white heather, or whatever it might be. So when a whisper went around Hartshead that such a new phenomenon had been sighted, fear and panic spread like runny jam across all the residents. Old John from Free Lane's End saw it, a needle woman told her neighbour. Last night, it came down the lane after midnight. Well, I say it, but there were more than one of them, he said. Four of them, all clad in these long black ghostly robes so you couldn't see nout of their hideous form. And that's not the worst of it, oh no. You see, on their shoulders they were carrying a huge coffin, all covered with a great pall as dark as the pit. That's what he told me. A funeral it was. Was it? What was in the coffin? asked the neighbour. I don't know. Do do ghosts bury each other? Well, how would that work? Maybe boggarts have funerals if ghosts don't? And there continued much existential musings on the religion of boggarts and ghosts and whether they were dead or alive and why they might need a funeral. Which ultimately resolved little, as neither person had the knowledge to reach a conclusion on the issues, but which helped pass away the time and bury the fear that was starting to churn in their stomachs. Oh well, whatever it was, it's buried now, so that'll be the end of it, they eventually agreed. But that was not the end of it. A week later and the fiendish funeral was seen again, four figures hoisting their pall-draped casket along the long lane at night. And not long after that, the boggart burial was spied a third time, making its way down that same lane again. 
Soon enough, the nerves of the village folk were shredded to pieces, and while it had, as yet, shown no malevolence, they weren't taking any chances. People were sure to get home well before dusk, and even in the day they took highly circuitous routes and illogical detours to avoid the long lane which the procession had seemed to make its own. Boggart Lane, they began to call the place. A moniker with a distinct lack of uniqueness or originality, but which was functional and to the point. The general tone of conversations took a new track soon enough. Okay, who's doing it then? Who is getting rid of this? Someone has to. It can't go on like this. Kind of by default and without his say-so, the old schoolmaster soon found himself pegged for the newly vacant position of ghostly funeral wrangler. The man knew not just Latin but geometry as well, a combination that surely brought to bear the joint weight of both magic and science against the supernatural. But for some reason the venerable schoolmaster was less than keen himself. Oh no, obviously I'm very wise, but I've never learned the boggart tongue, you know, um, very specialist language, I'm sure. Lots of fricative pharyngeal glottal phonemes, you know, not really my area. So, volunteers were sought from the community, and somehow none came forward, while the harvest of excuses was bountiful indeed. Some were too old, some too young, some would pretend to receive a phone call just as they were being asked, and this being several centuries before the invention of the mobile, they'd hold their hand up to their head, point at it, mouth, sorry, can't talk now, to the would-be volunteer recruiters, and then give a performative, hey, Johnny, good to hear from you, how's tricks, to their empty hand while walking swiftly away in the opposite direction. And so it continued, until one fateful evening, the residents were gathered in the local inn, before heading home disappointingly early to avoid the ghost. Over their measures they glumly contemplated the seemingly intractable situation and rued the fearful funeral that had disrupted their quite normally phantom-haunted lives. The conversation was all about it. Maybe it's just one ghost and they're trying to bury it but it doesn't stick. Because it's a ghost. Hmm, but what if it's people that they've killed and they're bringing them here to bury them? Rhubarb, rhubarb. When all of a sudden, the door was flung open with a dramatic flourish and the rector from Ashton strode in. Right, my parishioners, said he. What's this I hear about some kind of ghostly funeral? Rector, it's true, it's true. Saw it with my own two eyes, said Margaret. And so did old Jones. Coming down Boggart Lane, it were, a terrible sight to behold. Pish, posh, what tommy rot, what poppycock, said the rector. What a portion of codswallop and chips with a liberal sprinkling of balderdash. There are no such thing as ghosts. It's a superstition unworthy of a good Christian. This pronouncement was met with an embarrassed silence. Not a sullen or resentful silence, though. For the people actually had a great deal of respect for the rector with his taste for the theatrical, for it was he who had married them, buried them, christened them, generally helped the community through life from his peaceful church which was uniquely untroubled by the bogles that they lived with day in and day out. But they did live with them day in and day out, so 
Despite their respect, they knew in this case, despite all his book learning, they'd have to agree to disagree. Eventually, Margaret piped up. Look, all I can say, Rector, is that I saw it. A funeral it was. And if you want, I'll swear to it on the Bible. It's as real as you and I. I believe you, Margaret, said the Rector, his voice softening. But I'm here to look after my parishioners. And I won't see you cower like this. So I pledge to you, my flock, that I will spend every night from now on working to get to the bottom of this mystery. And I promise you, one way or the other, I will free you from this. And he turned with a twirl of his cassock and marched out as suddenly as he had arrived. And in his wake he left the first flickers of optimism for a while. Maybe the rector actually did have what it took. And if he didn't, well, at least he'd learn about the funeral himself. And that might stop him preaching all about what they shouldn't be believing in. So as far as they were concerned, it was kind of win-win. And the rector was good to his word. You couldn't really fault this guy, even if he was a total scully, living in a world replete with evidence of the supernatural, and for some reason unwilling to see it. Sorry, but I want to go off on a tangent here. Scully. The evidence-based, scientific one. Look, in our world, where you know there aren't aliens and ghosts and demons and werewolves presenting themselves unambiguously to you every week, in our world it makes sense, if you're going by science and evidence, to say that they don't exist. I get that. But in the world of the X-Files, where they so clearly do exist, as shown by the mountains of evidence, you're not being rational by saying, oh no, this thing I can clearly see right in front of me doesn't exist. You're not the scientific rationalist sceptical one then, you don't get to be called that. No, you're the wrong one. Scully is the equivalent of an anti-vaxxer, willing to look aliens in the face and call them swamp gas. Any sceptic in this world who saw an actual man unambiguously mutated from a fluke worm would be like, yes, this thing exists, and the scientists would be all over it, desperate to get investigating it, and get their hands on those sweet, sweet nobles, rather than saying, Oh no, it was probably a hallucination. Look, I think you get the point. Sorry to everyone there, but especially those of you who haven't watched The X-Files. If you haven't, well, I would like to be able to recommend it, but I've got no idea how badly it's aged, and it might have done so very badly indeed. But anyway, let's get back to the story. The Rector was, like Scully, a boggart denier but he did care a lot about the people in his parish, and he took his responsibility for their well-being very seriously. And so that very night, he took himself off to Boggart Lane, and with him he brought some twine and a heavy walking stick, for he had a plan of sorts. He stretched the wire right across the path at about knee height, tying the ends into the hedges on either side. You see, he reckoned that if this really was a phantom procession, then it would simply pass through this obstacle. And if it did that, well, he'd have to completely reevaluate his worldview, and maybe start reading up on how to do exorcisms. But if they did not, well, 
he had a walking stick and that would probably be enough to keep him safe. And the rector found himself a nice, comfy place just behind the hedge and he settled down to wait. Hours passed. The night was dark and still, and though he had a heavy coat on, which was a serious step for a northerner such as himself, he still found himself getting chilly. He could be at home in the rectory now, in his comfy chair, with his books and his warming fire, and he was just beginning to consider that he should call it off for the night, doubts about Margaret's testimony growing ever stronger in his mind, when he heard the sounds of footsteps from down the lane. He peered through a hole in the hedge to see who was coming. It was just as she said. Four dark cowled figures bearing a coffin between them, making their way down the lane. There had been no lie, no mistake. Here it was, in all its terrible reality. The rector's heart caught in his throat, his head swam. As brave as he was, he wasn't immune to fear, and he found himself wishing he wasn't quite so alone. The phantoms made their way towards the stretched-out twine. Now, I think there's something pretty odd about this plan, right? Like, if it turns out that they are in fact solid, well, I'm not sure that finding a solid bunch of things doing a funeral at midnight is much better than finding the phantom one. To me, those seem to be equally bad options, and I think a strong case can actually be made for corporeal boggarts being even worse than ghosts. And maybe all this was occurring to the rector now, as he watched transfixed this spooky sight. But it was too late. Ghostly footsteps approached the twine. They were nearly there. Any second... The parson had almost stopped breathing. They reached the twine, and with a uh, the lead bearer tripped and fell, lost his grasp on the coffin which came falling after him, and in short order all four bearers tumbled under the weight of it, with a huge cacophony of distinctly human shouts and curses, interspersed with a surprising bleating. And the commotion freed the rector from his fearful paralysis, Adrenaline coursed through him, and he jumped up, walking stick in hand, pulling the shade from his lantern to illuminate the scene. Aha! he cried, and perhaps even, I kick ass for the Lord. It was clearly men in front of him, mortal human men, still dangerous and terrifying creatures of course, but as the rector had suspected, not a supernatural being about them. Now, things really could have gone pretty badly for the rector here, Four coffin-carrying blokes are still not an easy thing to contend with. But luck was on his side, for the men were injured from the falling coffin, thoroughly shocked, dazzled by the light, facing an opponent that they could not see who had swept them off their feet. They perhaps thought they themselves were the ones facing a supernatural threat, or at least a force larger than one zealous, sceptical parson. And the men picked themselves up as best they could, and they fled at speed back down the lane.
Soon enough the sounds of the fraudulent phantoms faded, and the rector was left alone with the coffin, which, now the pall was pulled from it, he could see was less a traditional coffin shape, and more just a big box. A big box containing a couple of sheep. All of this had been a front for sheep stealing. Mystery solved. The rector felt very proud of a job well done. And I for one am very disappointed that not one of the sheep stealers disguising themselves as a phantom hung around long enough to deliver the line. And I would have got away with it if it wasn't for you meddling rectors. And that, that's basically the end of the story. The rector's completely incorrect views as to the existence of the supernatural weren't challenged. The residents of Hartshead were grateful, and perhaps they learned a valuable lesson about man being the real monster or something. But they got to keep more of their sheep and get on with their lives, contending with just the usual bunch of boggarts. By the way, I'm kind of impressed by people who, living in a world replete with real supernatural threats, would venture outside after dark disguised as a supernatural threat themselves. And in the longer term, great changes came to the area. The factories, the railways, eventually the motor car. And as those changes came, so the boggarts, the pad feet, the ghosts, retreated further and further away from the places of humanity, into the shrinking wilds, where eventually they faded away entirely. Not too far away from Hartshead, up on the moors to the east of Manchester, there's a rocky outcrop, by reputation an altar used by the druids in days long gone. And it was there, on that mystical spot, when sometime in the 19th century, at dusk on a beautiful summer evening, Rora Pina was sighted one final time. Rora Pina was the very last fairy to be seen in the parish of Saddleworth. The old world was gone, and for the residents of Hartshead, like everywhere else, modernity arrived with all its fresh evils mixed in with its benefits, and boggarts bothered the people no more. And had the rector been alive to see it, he would have found that now he was correct. No longer was there anything out there, and just perhaps the world was a duller place for it. Okay, so discussion section two. I'm just going to start off by saying that I really enjoy the setting for this story. I could talk about that for ages. The story itself, yep, fine, good. You know, I wouldn't have told if it wasn't. But I've got a real soft spot for out-of-the-way little rural places on the edge of nowhere where the supernatural lurks and the people there kind of put up with it. I think in some part of my childhood imagination... This is what I thought the past was really like, and I don't believe I'm alone there. I think quite a large part of me just wants to sit in a pub while supernatural terrors rage in a dark and stormy night outside, but the firelight, the alcohol, the good company, maybe the music, keeps them at bay. It's kind of a metaphor for something. 
Now, it probably goes without saying that this is a relatively modern story, and by modern here I mean 19th century. It's an amalgam of all kinds of folkloric tales smooshed together, and the story itself has a bit of a hint of an urban legend about it. If you imagine that you remove the bit where all these things exist and just have the Scooby-Doo-esque mystery, it feels like something that could theoretically have happened. Almost certainly didn't, but it could. And as such a story, it could easily be translated into your place of choice. Though here, it is very much in Hartshead. So, where does it come from? Well, the story as I've just told it comes from a 1870 book by William E. A. Axon called The Black Knight of Ashton. In that story, it has a framing narrative, as do many of the stories in that book, where it's told by a local who heard it from his grandfather. It's written down in some approximation of the local dialect as well, so not the easiest to read. Now, William E. A. Axon was a journalist at the Manchester Guardian, a noted vegetarian activist, an antiquary, a folklore collector, and another all-round interesting guy. However, it's clear that in creating this story, he himself mashed together tales that had been told by one of his friends, John Higson. It may well be a tribute to Higson. And it's John Higson who is therefore really the source of most of this story. He was another 19th century folklore collector who grew up in Gorton, a Manchester suburb, and coming from a relatively poor background, went on to become a bit of a local historian and folklorist. He collected the tales of all the many beasties and things that go bump in the night that crop up in the story. His tales are all set very locally in named Manchester suburbs, giving the areas that feel of a rich supernatural inhabitation. Though when you actually read his writings, he does definitely have a tendency of ascribing belief in such things to the simple minds of the lower orders that have not been trained. Reading his work is fascinating for folk legends, but you definitely know that he'd be on the Parsons side in this story. I definitely recommend reading his work, and I should say that I owe quite a lot here to the work of Dr Simon Young, who has collected Higson's work together in a publication that was last year actually, so very recently indeed. I don't think I would have been able to tell that story or find all these pieces without his book. Okay, so lastly I tagged Rora Pina on at the end there. She is taken from Higson's work, though she's not in the story of the Boggart, technically. But I really wanted to include her because I love the tantalising idea that there was one last fairy who left. The site where she's meant to have been seen is a real rock formation called the Pots and Pans. They have their own little legends associated with them, but we won't go into them now. And they're a nice place for a walk. There's some caves nearby known as the Fairy Holes, appropriately. And these days there's also a prominent war memorial on the site. The bit of the story that I suppose I didn't mention was that Rora Pina apparently tried to allure the person who last saw her into those fairy holes. No giggling at the back. But that's a one-liner, and otherwise all we get is this seeing her and disappearing. And to me, there's just something magical about this whole idea. I'm trying to express this. It's like that intense, reflective, half-sad, half-somehow-nostalgic, generally thoughtful feeling you get when you finish a really good book. That's the feeling that it summons in me. The last of the Saddleworth fairies. 
I like the fact that we've got this named fairy who is, by the way, as far as I can tell, completely unique and who stands on the border between the old world and the new, as if things were so binary and simple. I feel like I could use the words numinous and liminal here, like I was trying to win some kind of academic folklore buzzword bingo, but honestly, that's kind of how I feel about it. Anyway, I could witter on about this for ages, but that's probably enough for now. So I've got one last Manchester thing to leave you with before we leave the city behind. I say thing because this really isn't a story. In fact, for the first time ever outside of a discussion section, I'm going to tell you now of something that genuinely happened. Now, I wouldn't normally do this, but if you start looking into Manchester folklore and legends, well, this tale comes up pretty much at the top of the list, so I really felt that I should cover it. But yes, this is a bit more factual than my usual storytelling style, though I've kind of tagged a more storyish bit at the start. Do you care about any of this? Possibly, but probably not. And while this story has a very obvious title, to save on spoilers just a little, I'm going to entitle it The Unusual Afterlife of Hannah Bezik. Now, Sebastian Zian de Ferranti was a Liverpool-born man of some great talent in the area of science and engineering, and he had a particular aptitude in the new field of electricity that was developing in the late decades of the 19th century. An inventor and an engineer from an early age, he went into business with the rather appropriately named Charles Sparks, which I only mentioned because, yeah, non-native determinism there. But Ferranti and Sparks' partnership fizzled out, and Ferranti went on to set up his own company in his own name. Factories soon followed, and while Ferranti was long dead by the 1950s, his name lived on in his company, building radar, sonar, early computers, from its several factories within Greater Manchester. It's a very modern story of industrialisation, that gift of Manchester to the world. Our story kind of starts in Oldham, which is even further distant from central Manchester than Hartshead, but is, for our purposes, Manchester enough. And it starts at the brand new Ferranti factory in Hollandshead. New at the time of our story, which is the 50s. Now, the building is still actually there today, as a newspaper office, though the Ferranti Corporation collapsed in scandal in the 90s. Now, into that factory goes the narrative camera. There are people there, hard at work, building massive electrical transformers. And I mean big here, like bigger than a person size. It's an ultra-modern place, unimaginably distant from the boggart-infested hamlets of our previous tale. Imagine if you can workers in the factory in the 1950s. I'm going to level with you here. I'd struggle to explain accurately what a modern transformer factory looks like on a day-to-day basis, never mind one from the 50s. So your imagination on this is going to have to do some unsupported heavy lifting. Evening is starting. Perhaps one shift is leaving and another is arriving. I don't know. Seems plausible, doesn't it? And a cry comes from one man. Hey, you miss. You ain't supposed to be here. If it's one thing I do know about the 1950s, it's that women weren't meant to be in factories, regardless of if they actually were or not. Heads turn to the man and the woman he addressed. 
the woman who gave no reply or even any indication that she had heard. She looked a mighty odd sort for a place like that, dressed in a long black gown that swept along the factory floor as she walked. A few of the men who had turned started to feel distinctly uneasy as the shout at her came again, and again she refused to respond. There was a growing discomfort as this everyday pedestrian workplace all of a sudden seemed to be anything but. One man went to shout again, Oi! But found the words caught in his throat. Silence fell, and the woman turned and walked straight through a wall. The Ferranti factory had been built on the site of an estate known as Birchen Bower. It had a farm and a reasonably large house, and somewhat unusually in the early 1740s, it was owned by a woman, one Hannah Bezik, who had also come into several other properties owned by her family on the early death of her brother. This was a turbulent time in English history. One minor aspect of Manchester's history we've not yet touched upon is the support from the city for the Stuart Restoration. And yes, I know this is pretty dry stuff. I'm not going to go into all the detail. The only thing you really need to know is that in 1745, an army was marching south from Scotland, led by Bonnie Prince Charlie, and that some from Manchester joined with it. War was here, and war meant death, destruction, and forced wealth redistribution. In an effort to avoid this latter, Hannah Bezik buried or otherwise concealed much of her fortune somewhere in the vicinity of Birchenbauer. And when the danger passed, as it did, she left it all, her jewels, her money, all left where she'd hidden them. And she told no one where that was. And a decade or so later, Hannah Bezik died. By the time she did, she was ill. Too ill to be able to let her unfortunate relatives, or indeed anyone else, know where she buried her fortune in those crazy days of the 45 Rebellion. Well, that was the story. Though, as you'll hear, she did manage to convey a lot of other information as she was dying. Apparently. So, I'm suspicious. But anyway, she died a perfectly natural death. And it looked then inevitable that she would take her secret to the grave with her. But Fortune had other plans about that. Now, oddly enough, the whole buried treasure thing, that ends here. It's a misfiring Chekhov's gun, if you will. It could still be there, buried under the factory. But no, no Fortune had other plans for the bit about taking anything at all to the grave. Because both Fortune and Dr Charles White, the Bezik family physician, and I think it's fair to say all-round odd chap, had some very peculiar designs upon Hannah's corpse. Yes, it was Hannah's ghost that haunted the Ferranti factory where her house once stood. But perhaps unusually here, we are interested not so much in her ghost, nor so much in her life, but in the unusual events that happened in between. Now, There are a couple of stories of what happened next, and normally in the podcast I would just pick one and run with it, and maybe drop in a mention at the end. But here, the difference is that what I'm telling you is factual, more or less. It happened, putting opinions on ghosts to one side for the moment. 
So we have a number of versions of events. The most compelling one, and one that's been repeated throughout the ages, is that Hannah had a fear of being buried alive, or taphophobia, as it might be pronounced, or taphophobia, as it almost certainly isn't. In her case, this was a very well-founded fear, for it was said that some years previous, her brother had actually been placed in a coffin before waking up, getting rescued, and then going on to live a decent life. Pretty horrific. But the method supposedly chosen by Hannah to avoid such a fate was unorthodox, to say the least. She apparently requested that family doctor, Charles White, would make sure she was not buried, and he would check on her periodically for signs of life. She might well have done this, though it's not in the will we have a copy of. One account of her will says she left Dr White the estate of Birchin Bower and a huge fortune if he'd make sure she wasn't buried, and this, this definitely isn't the case. So we have to be somewhat suspicious here. But it is the case that Hannah Beswick wasn't buried. She took nothing with her to the grave, because she didn't go. Perhaps Charles White had interpreted her requests in a certain hyperbolic way to fit his own peculiar and macabre designs. He already owned a skeleton of a highwayman, one Thomas Higgins, in his own personal creepy collection. Because it was the 18th century and apparently a respectful gentleman could do stuff like that back then. Editor's note. Since I wrote that line, I've discovered on TikTok that people in America have large private collections of corpses, so I think I was a bit hasty in assigning blame here to the 18th century. Sorry, 18th century. The whole human corpse collection thing is timeless. Back to the story. Now, perhaps Thomas Higgins' skeleton wanted to go to a party. Bear with me. And luckily, that skeleton was soon to have somebody to go with it. Because it was going to have a body. Hannah Bezik's body. Not for the skeleton. The body would just be in the same... Okay, this hasn't worked. Anyway, you see where I'm going with this. Hannah Bezik was joining the collection. Charles White got his hands on her corpse. And he had no intentions of burying her. To do that, well, out came the entrails of the corpse, along with all the other various organs whose purpose was long since served. Out came the blood, and into the veins turpentine was pumped in its place. Into the spaces where organs had been were shoved camphor, nitro and resin. Then Dr Charles sewed her all back up with her brand new innards and wound bandages tightly around the body, leaving just her face exposed. Dr White, not a Cluedo character, almost had her as he wanted her. But just a mummy, for that's what Hannah now was, just a mummy was not odd enough for his outre tastes. Oh no no. He had to make sure she wouldn't be buried. Remember, that's what all this was supposedly in aid of. And how best to do that than by keeping her upright at all times? No better way, I'm sure you'll agree. And he had just the method to keep her so. This would involve removing the innards from yet another body, but White was now a dab hand at that. The next target of his disemboweling was a grandfather clock. Out came all the springs and sprockets, the pulleys and pendulums, and in their place went Hannah Beswick's pickled corpse. 
off too came the clock face, replaced by Hannah's post-mortem one. It wasn't as good at telling time as the clock had been. It wasn't even right twice a day. It wasn't right unless the time was deathly visage, which it mostly isn't, and, you know, when it is, you'll know about it without the need for a mummy clock. Trust me. But as a convenient container, the clock case was just right. Eat your heart out, Earl Tupper. But could Dr White stop there? No, 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 no. And now we see the real sense of the showman, or perhaps just the ghoulish practical joker who takes it too far. For to complete this unique ensemble, he had a small curtain placed at the top of the clock over Hannah's exposed face, which I assume he used in a kind of offhand way with guests who made the mistake of asking to know the time and were soon to have the shock of their lives. Oh yes, the clock's there. Just just pull back the little curtain, why don't you? <laughs> and this was to be the lot of Hannah's cadaver. Even if the stories about her asking the doctor to ensure she wasn't buried are correct, one struggles to truly believe that she would have been much pleased with this state of affairs. It feels like the real goal, stopping her being buried alive, was discarded as soon as all of her organs were taken out. And all the rest is really on Charles. For a very small amount of time, the mummy was actually kept to one of Beswick's other properties, Cheatwood House. But a couple of years after that, the all-round concerning figure of Dr White got his hands back on her. Apparently, once a year he'd gather witnesses, who presumably did know what they were in for, reveal her face, show that no, she was absolutely still dead, you know, she wasn't suddenly holding a card that read, I ain't dead, or breathing, or something. I can imagine the scene now. Pull back curtain. Looks like she's still dead, guys. Cover face up. Do you think she might be alive now? (gasps) Pull back curtain. No, no, she's still dead. Cover face up. And yes, that would get old pretty quickly. But there'd always be that little frisson of fear that you pull it back and suddenly she'd be there. Eyes open and staring at you. All this checking on her was apparently also in accordance with her dying wishes. Which are freaking weird dying wishes. And I'm not judging Hannah when I say that. Rather, I'm questioning the words of Charles White. Now, that sequence of events, all of what I've just described, is kind of up for interpretation. But what does seem pretty well established is that yes, Charles White did have Hannah Bezik's mummy in a clock case. And he also took her with him when he moved and retired, going to the country, presumably along with his highwaymen to keep each other company and to terrify removal people. There's also a story that appears that, once again, in keeping with Hannah's wishes, because those wishes were so important, and Dr White was just doing as instructed. Anyway, that story says that, according to her wishes, her body must reside at Birch and Bowers for seven days every 21 years. Uh, yeah, just, whatever. Okay, she said that. And so... Every 21 years, which must be like twice at maximum, Charles took it back to Birchin Bower. I'm unclear of the ownership of the property at this point and whether it was Hannah's relatives or if he was entering Grandfather Clock under one arm, waving his ultra-powerful Last Wishes of the Deceased, Can't Stop Me card with the other. However it was, he apparently took her back for the allotted time and put her in a barn at the farm for seven days. As you do. 
it's what she would have wanted. And while everything had been perfectly normal at Dr White's house, or whatever passed for normal there, when the mummy came to Birch and Bower, spooky events started to occur. And if you're thinking about the ghost, well yes, that would make sense, but get this, for maximum chills and thrills of terror, a cow somehow managed to get into the hayloft. Presumably, the working theory was that the mummy yeeted it up there. Real spooky stuff, this. And that's the end of that interlude. So, things continued like this. But eventually, the death which obsessed him came also for the good Dr White. And some poor soul was bequeathed his collection. And yes, being left an actual recently mummified human body in a clock sounds exciting to some. I get that. But not everyone shares that opinion. And certainly it comes with some moral quandaries, to say the least. The lucky soul in question was another doctor, and faced with the prospect of this inheritance and all the tricky issues it raised, this Dr Ollier decided it was best to just donate the whole thing to a museum, an institution whose moral purity could of course never be in doubt. And so Hannah was on the move again, though now stripped from her clocks around. She was placed in a brand new clear glass coffin, which actually sounds pretty bling. And then she was put on display, as a museum piece, along with much more ancient mummies from Peru and Egypt, who had of course also been acquired in very morally dubious circumstances. The museum was that of the Manchester Natural History Society on Peter Street, rough slap bang in the middle of Manchester. And so, while Hannah was called the Birch and Bower Mummy sometimes, this was honestly a bit of a rubbish name, and history remembers her more often with the superior alliterative moniker, the Manchester Mummy. And she was apparently a bit of a hit. We have a first-hand description of her by a museum visitor, though sadly no photos. Quote, The body was well preserved, but the face was shriveled and black. The legs and trunk were wrapped in a strong cloth such as is used for bed ticks, and the body was that of a little woman. Unquote. Which is altogether a pretty boring description, except maybe for revealing that on top of everything else, Hannah was half-elephant. It was in the museum that the Manchester mummy got its fame, and for 50 or so years she remained there, entertaining tourists, until, in 1868, 110 years after her death, well, probably, I mean, there was still the question of whether she was really dead, but let's call it that for the sake of convenience. 110 years after her death, some people with authority had finally become slightly disquieted by the whole state of affairs, and the body was starting to age somewhat. And so, eventually, no less a person than the Home Secretary himself gave permission for Hannah Beswick to be buried. Finally, she was forced to face her fears in an unmarked grave in a city cemetery. Or not forced to face her fear of being buried alive, because she was dead. 
And that was it for Hannah Bezik. Of course, while her body was now safely in the ground, her ghost continued to walk the old rooms of Birch and Bower, even when they had been long demolished and turned into a factory. And those astonished transformer engineers we began with had little idea that the ghost they were seeing was but one of the afterlives of Hannah Bezik, and possibly not even the strangest. There's no discussion section about this one. In many ways, the story itself was the discussion section on it. But I will say that John Higson, he who provided the inspiration for the second story, he also has a very brief tale about a cow that ends up in the rafters due to some supernatural disturbance. So maybe this was actually a pretty common ghostly occurrence and not just caused by modern mummies. But otherwise, that's it, the end of the Manchester Tales. Over these two episodes, we've covered a spooky visit to Boggart Hall Clough, where we found a strange otherworld, had the podcast's very first Orphurian tale, if one a little off-piste from the main, and this episode we've talked about a screaming skull that doesn't scream, a funeral that wasn't, and a very modern mummy, and we've touched upon the presence of teeming hordes of supernatural beings along the way. Before I go, I'd really like to give a thanks to my patrons who have stuck with me through this less-than-ideal release schedule and to give a massive shout-out to everyone who has supported me on Patreon since the last episode was released, which is quite a few people, actually, as it was quite a while ago. Those are Anna Aglietti, Heather Wilcox, Anise, Karen, Jay Wong, Emily, Evita and Evo. Thank you all so much for your support. It really means a lot to me. As ever, if you want to support me on Patreon, I only take donations when there's actually a new members episode. Those are shorter episodes than on here, averaging 30 minutes. There are currently four on there, featuring an unusual Irish mermaid, a terrifying Scottish water beast, a strange English weather event, and a Welsh corpse. With the next episode likely to feature a dragon story, with a damsel who has a different relationship with the beast. If you want to support the podcast and are able to afford it, then please do sign up. Leaving reviews and sharing the podcast with others are also great ways to support me. A shout out again to Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman for the music for this episode. It was lovely to be contacted by such talented musicians, and I'm very happy that they've allowed me to include their work. Okay, and that's really it, guys. I'm Graham. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Next episode, we'll be leaving the modern industrial realness behind and launching into a Scottish fairy tale that's, well, a cracking tale. And if you've got it from that hint, well, you might not need to be listening to this podcast. Anyway, I hope you can join me again then. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website.
If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.